Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. I am Doug, and I will be your host for today. Uh, Jonathan can't be with us today, unfortunately. He's having some audio problems, but he will be in the chat. Uh, with me today are Elliot and Tiffany. Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. And unfortunately, Gabby and Erica won't be with us today either. So yeah. they will be with us again in Just future shows. Just the three shows. musketeers. The three musketeers, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Hey, so we yeah. are going <laughs> to... We're going to be doing a little dot connecting today on the Health and Wellness Show. Um, there's been a lot of interesting stories in the news as of late, so we'll be covering some of them. Uh, in gut news, we'll be covering the power of mother's milk, uh, how gut flora can influence food cravings, and the rapidly shrinking people uh, in <laughs> populations across America. Uh, as well, we'll cover a, a few things in pharmaceutical news, vaccine madness continues, statins are really bad for you. And uh, there's been big stories as far as corruption is concerned at the CDC and the FDA. Nothing new there. Um, also, we'll be looking at what will happen with uh, mandatory vaccination if uh, Hillary Clinton becomes president. So a lot of interesting stuff to cover. Um, well, why don't we start with that one about the uh, component in mother's milk, which was interesting news. Yeah. Oh, aside from um, lactose and fats that nourish the baby, uh, some researchers came up with, um, they found something called human milk oligosaccharides, which is kind of a sugar mm -hmm. substance, and it mm -hmm. really doesn't feed the baby. It feeds the baby's back, gut bacteria, mm -hmm. the bifidobacterium yeah. longum infantis. And yeah. this bacteria helps seal gaps in the gut, and it keeps microbes out of the bloodstream, which is a good thing because you don't want your baby to be born with leaky gut syndrome. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty interesting, though, that, like, you know, up, up until now, they kind of had this idea that, you know, the breast milk is just basically there for caloric intake. You know, it has, mm -hmm. you know, there's some nutrients in there as well, but basically it's like carbs, fats, protein. And uh, it, the more they kind of look into it and the more they actually study the microbiome, uh, the more they're actually discovering about it. And like oligosaccharides are, um, like you said, they're sugar molecules, but they're, they're a type of fiber actually, which, which humans don't have the ability to break down and absorb energy from, but bacteria do. So the mother is actually like the, the body's intelligence is good enough to know that it needs to be supporting the microbiome of the of the child and that it's giving something to the child by a kind of indirect route. So it's pretty mm -hmm. interesting. Well, they have uh, talked about that before with um, C-sections versus vaginal births. And mm -hmm. babies who are born vaginally get seeded with a lot of uh, the mother's bacteria, and that helps boost their immunity as well. Mm -hmm. So it's good for your babies to have germs. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there's some interesting statistics on uh, women or babies who have been born um, via C-section and then babies who are born uh, naturally and also be babies who are breastfed and then babies who aren't breastfed. And quite often mm -hmm. what you find is that um, the babies who aren't um, 
they have a lot higher incidence of things like allergies and mm. different, you know, types of asthma and even infection and um, generally a lower immune system in general. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this, 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 uh, this research really is quite interesting and it's shining light. Um, is when it comes to to nourishing a baby you know what i mean like uh i mean it says it's said in that article that human breast milk um stands out among all of the other mammals so uh, typically human breast breast milk um it contains five times as many hmos uh, as um as cow's milk and you know several hundred times a quantity so um I think it also it's interesting how that links with how our, our gut is is quite a lot different from many other mammals. Um, like mm-hmm. if you can compare the the, the intestinal brush border um, of a human with a a monkey, for instance, it seems as if our gut has um, developed the capacity to become leaky to maybe even allow certain nutrients in when when you compare mm-hmm. with with other animals. Yeah. yeah. It's also interesting because um, a lot of the um, constituents, because what, what happens basically is the bacteria break down these oligosaccharides and then they put, they put out uh, what's for them waste product. But that's actually very uh, important nutrients for, um, for humans. And uh, one of the things they were speculating on in this article is that uh, the reason that the components are so different in human breast milk versus cow milk or even primate milk is that it actually um, is those, those constituents, some of them are short-chain fatty acids that actually feed the brain. And because we are a species that has a much uh, higher energy expenditure in our brain than any other species on the planet, to my knowledge, that it, it's kind of like tailor-made in that way. And that just kind of shines light on the whole idea that, you know, form, you can see why formula-fed infants have so many problems, like you were saying before, uh, Elliot, like, you know, if, if like all they're doing generally is kind of taking a look at the macro components and some of the vitamins in breast milk and they try to mimic that with these powders. Mm-hmm. But there's so much there that actually isn't uh, getting fed to the infant when they're not breastfed. It's awfully strange because I know there's quite a bit of debate about uh, is actually the most healthy healthy for that baby. I know there's some schools of thought that um that come at it from the perspective that somehow breastfeeding is not important and it's mm. almost like nature's made a mistake <laughs> and yeah. that it's 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 more um it's more hygienic to or, yeah. or socially acceptable to feed a baby a powder that's been made in a factory or a laboratory or <laughs> it's like uh and and it's really it's really sad to see so many babies now throughout the past uh you know 50 60 years or something that have been born um and they've been fed breast milk formula and it you know it's not so much of a surprise that we see so many shoots of um diseases now you know and and Mm -hmm. asthma and allergies and all of these different things it's like uh well you know if the baby's not getting everything they needs as a child uh, when it's growing um, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive to think that that wouldn't be affecting the health of society now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, especially the allergies thing too, right? Like, I mean, you're feeding uh, your baby these oligosaccharides, the bacteria are fermenting those and, and putting out uh, different nutrients that actually help with the integrity of the gut lining. Um, so if you don't have those things, then it stands to reason that the gut lining would be much more permeable, which of course leads to uh, whole proteins getting through the gut lining and then you have allergies. So it's kind of not a surprise that there's that uh, connection there. Yeah, I wasn't breastfed, and I don't think I ever got over it. <laughs> but uh, Are you still speaking, sad about that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> speaking of um, gut microbes, um, there was another article about how gut microbes can influence your food cravings, and mm. it's uh, there's been research that you know people who uh, are obese actually have uh, a lower diversity of gut microbes than people who are of normal weight. So that's mm. interesting. Um, but uh, in this article, it says that um, there's this dense network of neurons in the gut, and they refer to it as the enteric nervous system or the second brain. Um mm. So there's been a lot of research over the years that the gut actually is a second brain. You get a lot of um, your serotonin is, you know, uh, higher quantities in your gut. Um, you know, everybody knows about the uh, the uh, intuition or gut feelings. Um, mm -hmm. The gut and the brain are connected uh, through the vagus nerve. Uh, also, it's connected through the lymph system and the hormonal and inflammation signals that travel through your bloodstream. But there's mm -hmm. different microbes that prefer different types of food. Um, there's one type that you know prefers particular fats, another type that grows best on carbohydrates, and even more that um, like dietary fibers. So that kind of shed some light on like why some people when they start taking probiotics or prebiotics that they might lose weight because it ch it changes the uh the the diversity of the gut um the gut microbes so mm -hmm. like if you're uh if your gut is overpopulated with uh microbes that like carbohydrates it might lead to you being more overweight because you're taking in too many carbohydrates. It's not necessarily that you're deciding that you want to eat more carbs, but your gut bacteria yeah. is saying, give me carbs, give me carbs. Which is such an insane thing to think about. The idea that these bacteria that seem like these independent entities in your gut can somehow influence what you actually want to eat. Uh -huh. Like that's just, yeah, it's so weird. Yeah, um, what I found most interesting about that article as well, he was talking about specific um, metabolites that certain gut bacteria produce. And, mm. um, and it talks about how there are many types of gut bacteria that actually manufacture small peptides, which are basically what make up yeah. proteins. So they're in your gut, and when you eat certain foods, they create these peptides. And <laughs> the interesting thing is that some of these peptides can actually mimic hormones in the body. So, um, for instance, it talks about microbes. Therefore, um, it says they can interfere with human appetite by directly mimicking satiety and hunger hormones um, by producing these peptides. So basically, 
you eat certain foods, they create these peptides and then these peptides um, act as your hormones would in your body, giving, you know, directing physiological responses to things that aren't even there. You know, like they're, they're mimicking these hormones. So we've got all of these problems with, uh, you know, estrogen dominance or um, testosterone deficiencies and all of these different things where you've got leptin hormones and everything like that. And all of these um, can, can act to alter the way that you think, the way that you feel and the foods that you are craving. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure what quite what my point was, but it was just that... <laughs> These, uh, you know, these gut bacteria are very important if you have yeah. the right ones. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like, it, it kind of gives new meaning to like cravings, right? Like I, I think about, you know, people have been talking about for years how if you have a candida issue, that will lead to sugar cravings. And that kind of like always to me was like, really? That just seems weird that these, the, this, this kind of fungus in your gut can kind of lead to you actually having these kinds of cravings. But this kind of makes it a, 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 like what you're describing, Elliot, kind of makes more sense that actually they're releasing these these peptides that actually cause these sorts of cravings. And it kind of makes you realize how like these cravings aren't really coming from you. Mm-hmm. And it, it maybe can like kind of give you strength in a way. It's kind of like, yes, I know I'm having sugar cravings right now, but I know also that it's not me. And by avoiding those things, you can actually shift the balance of bacteria so that those kind of cravings will stop so and also hope. for a, a little while it makes you feel kind of hopeless too because you're thinking like i'm not even in charge of my own body i don't have any control yeah. over what's going on did you ever think you were yeah at the moment i mean there's some <laughs> okay. things you can you gradually you know stop eating sugars and things like that to kind of shift the balance but for all those years or however long you were under the sway of certain bacteria in your gut, it's kind of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I wasted so many years listening to my bacteria. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also talks about how um, how some of these gut, um, these gut bacteria, um, they release short-chain fatty acids. And this is a breakdown product of... Um, the fermentation of dietary fiber. And what is really interesting about this is that these short chain fatty acids um, actually have the ability to modify the expression of genes in the brain and throughout Mm. the body. Um, But so, I mean, if, if you live the modern lifestyle and you are not taking care of your diet, then the chances are that you may have some very nasty bacteria in your gut or um, you may have the wrong numbers of populations in your gut that are um, that are essentially um, altering your genetics, altering the way that your genes are expressed. So, you know, yeah. they, they try to link cancers and all of these things back to genetics. Well, it's actually epigenetics, it seems. And that even, you know, you can have a, a gene for some some weird form of cancer or something, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to express that gene. But the problem yeah. is you, you, we see that now this is one of the ways that perhaps those genes are expressed is by this this altered gut bacteria. Yeah, which is pretty fascinating. And it makes you realize how much you have to take care of your the balance of bacteria in your gut. 
I mean, all the different things that can affect it, like, you know, environmental toxins, the diet that you're eating, even stress, like all these things can actually affect your microbiome. So like taking care of that becomes of great importance. Well, speaking of feeding your gut bacteria good food, uh, there was uh, another article that came out uh, called The Standard American Diet May Be Shrinking People. So not only will an imbalanced gut bacteria cause you to crave certain foods, I guess if you're eating crap food also, uh, you're going to be shorter. And they're finding that, Mm -hmm. um, well... Uh, like right before World War One, American men were the third tallest on the planet. But by 2014, they dropped to 37th. That's a huge drop. Yeah. And uh, American yeah. women slipped from fourth tallest in the world to 42nd tallest in the world. Wow. That yeah. is bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's tough, though, like reading this article, it's like, um, you know, they don't have any kind of direct evidence that this is actually you can tie this back to diet. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's kind of like there th- that time period has marked a massive change in what Americans have been eating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it certainly isn't something that you could rule out. I mean, one one of the I, they they consulted somebody who wasn't involved in the study at one point, and they said that well, it might just be because immigration rates have changed, so that they're not. Um, and you know, it was they were taking um, data from uh, army recruitment um, at the, in the at the time of World War One, um, which would have had a more diverse population because they were um, recruiting or what's the word I'm looking for uh, conscripting. Um, at that time, there was a conscription, so everybody had to go into the into the army. Whereas now, it's kind of like uh, more often than not, it's kind of like poor, um, different uh, different poor populations that are being kind of recruited. So that could have something to do with it. But nonetheless, I think kind of the glaring um, thing is kind of the the change in diet. So we we don't know for sure, but uh, it could definitely be one of the main causes. Yeah. Well, I mean. I, I can I can tell you my story. I was sure. I was vegetarian. <laughs> I was vegetarian um, from the age of about four years old till I was eighteen, and um, most of the most of the men in my family are relatively tall. They're roughly six foot and above, um, hmm. and you know I was vegetarian all of my life, and I'm pretty short. You know, <laughs> so huh. that's not really that's not really great evidence. But I mean. I, I do I do tend to think that the quality of my diet or the lack of quality in my diet when I was growing up um, really did affect um, how how tall I grew. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that, uh, yeah, a lot of the um, nutrition that we get from animal foods is so important for growth as well as other things. I mean, you know, you're getting all your fat-soluble vitamins like your vitamin D, vitamin K, vitamin A. Um, but then you've also got just the fats themselves that are so important, uh, the cholesterol for hormones, all that kind of stuff is extremely important for growth and especially for like, uh, children and infants. So I can see how a vegetarian diet would, would certainly affect those kinds of things. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the standard American diet is just basically junk food. Yeah. So even if you are getting some animal foods, it's really, it's not, they're, they're terrible quality. They're 
deficient in in the proper kinds of fats and the fat soluble vitamins so yeah i mean it's it's not hard to kind of connect dots there yeah and you have to include all the sodas that american drink americans oh, yeah. drink leaching minerals from their bones with all the phosphates and that in there I mean, and it's yeah. been proven throughout history, like malnutrition. You're just not going to grow up to be as big or as strong as someone who gets good nutrition. So yeah. it's not really that much of a surprise. Well, even um, if you look uh, way back in history at uh, the time of the agricultural revolution, once uh, humans switched to uh, an agricultural um, mode, mm-hmm. the, their uh, height decreased. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of a, a fact that is, is quoted quite often. So, I mean, just going from a mainly animal-based diet to one that is kind of a combination diet with a lot of, uh, agricultural products, including grains mainly, uh, right there, you're already seeing a, a decrease in height. So is it any wonder that when people start living off sugar, suddenly they shrink even more? <laughs> And I guess that yeah. doesn't mean that once you go paleo or keto. Have you ever read of any <laughs> stories of people growing? People increasing their height. <laughs> no, but your kids might. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So keep that well, in mind, Elliot, brains, for your kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Feed them lots of fat. I'm not going to lie. When it, when I was 18, I switched straight away to keto. And, uh, and I was, I was, you know, silently hoping that I'd grow that few inches <laughs> higher, but it never happened. It, it was a bit too late for me. <laughs> well, they say that, that men, you know, they don't stop growing at 18. They might grow a little bit more like in their early twenties. <laughs> Maybe there's still Ooh. hope. <laughs> Well, speaking of grains, as we were a few seconds ago, there was another really interesting article that we looked into. Um, Scientists finally acknowledge leaky gut implicated in gluten sensitivity. Finally. uh, Yeah, finally. Exactly. Right. I mean, the alternative health community has been talking about this for, what, 20 years now? Mm -hmm. Uh, But science has finally um, lowered themselves to, to agree. Uh, so it's basically saying that they've uh, they've done some studies where they've actually found that uh, it's not just celiac disease that uh, is um, indicative of having uh, sensitivity to gluten. That there is actually such a thing as non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity or wheat sensitivity, as they call it. So uh, yeah, it was nice of them to finally catch up. Yeah, the way that they described it in the article was. Um... It says the results of this study suggest that the identified systemic immune activation in non-celiac wheat sensitivity is linked to increased translocation of microbial and dietary components from the gut into the circulation, in part due to intestinal cell damage and weakening of the intestinal barrier. Now, when I read that, I mean, it's put in loads of long, fancy words, but basically what they're saying, like as you just said, Doug, they're explaining exactly what a leaky gut is. And people have been saying mm-hmm. this for years and years and years. And it's only mm-hmm. just suddenly being recognized as if it's some new amazing finding. And that really kind of miffed me off because, you know, it, it, 
people um i i know a number of people actually who who in their direct experience feel like they have a sensitivity to wheat and then they go to a doctor and they get tested for certain gliadine proteins and they're told that they are not celiac and they're told that it's all in their head mm-hmm. and you know it can feel quite disempowering for someone to you know to every time they eat wheat they understand they have gastrointestinal problems or they feel weak and dizzy or they feel nauseous and then when they go to the doctor they're told that it's all in their head and they're imagining it mm-hmm. i mean it's a, it's it's pretty crazy um and it's it's kind of it's kind of good that you know they're finally acknowledging it whether it's going to be filtered through into mainstream medicine is another question yeah. and i don't yeah. see that happening anytime soon um, but at least it's being acknowledged among some of the researchers. However, well, I mean, to say that, that there are plenty of researchers who already deal with this and are well aware of the effects of gluten on the intestinal brush border. Um, but mm-hmm. it seems as if their work is, um, is not really being acknowledged by anyone. Well, speaking of things yeah. being all in your head, like when I was eating weed, I didn't have very much like gut issues, but I definitely yeah. had mood issues. Yeah. So, me and too. they said in that article, like a lot of people who are gluten sensitive might not have gut issues per se, but they might have like some kind of neurological problems or mood issues, brain fog issues. It don't really translate into something that you can test for in your gut and, you know, actually yeah. come up with an answer. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, if somebody, you know, it, it's difficult enough for somebody to kind of draw a connection between their symptoms um, and what they're eating because it's so that that still to this day kind of lies outside of people's kind of general understanding of how things work. So, you know, somebody starts feeling uh, fatigued all the time and they go to their doctor, doctor runs a couple of tests and says, no, it's all in your head. Mm-hmm. But really, I mean, if they just weren't eating a ham sandwich every day, Maybe this would be like, you know, uh, this would be something that they could kind of get to the bottom of. But, you know, you have doctors that aren't trained in this sort of thing. And I agree with you, Elliot, even though this has been in uh, in kind of a major journal, I still don't expect that your average doctor is going to take this on board uh, if they even see it. So it's it's just it's it's kind of a terrible situation. Yeah. Anyway. So, moving along here, we've got another article. Um, more mad science. GMO toma- uh, sorry, GMO tomatoes tweaked to stay firm longer. <laughs> so, I don't know about you guys, but I really don't care. I mean, I'm not a big fan of tomatoes anyway. But if I do mm. eat them, I don't like when I used to buy them. Like, I don't care if they go bad fast. It's not the tomato's fault. Yeah. It's my fault because I didn't eat the tomato fast enough. <laughs> so it's not like people are out there on the streets demanding firm tomatoes. <laughs> Give us our firm tomatoes or else. <laughs> like, why are they giving us this stuff? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. It's a classic example of giving us something that we don't need, that we don't like. Who's asking for this? I mean, maybe you could argue that, you know, some grocery chain is is saying, oh, these tomatoes are going bad too quickly and we're losing money on it or something like that. But honestly, like this is such a it's such a cosmetic thing. It just seems so ridiculous. (laughs) 
It seems like a waste of research money and a waste of time. And it's basically, I think it really just comes back to the whole thing, like the whole purpose of genetically modifying these foods is not to save the planet. It's not to feed the starving. It is to make money. And it is to have entire, like the biotech companies are working their fingers in to control absolutely every aspect of the food chain. So that anytime a farmer plants a seed, anytime you eat anything, that biotech company is making money. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to completely corner the entire world market of food. So, and that all they do is start, you know, bringing out all these absolutely useless genetically modified vegetables and fruits and everything else, pigs, salmon, everything. (laughs) Sometimes it actually makes me wonder when I read stories like this, um, kind of makes me wonder whether there is some just nutty, crazy, mad scientist like in a lab who just basically wants to distort nature in every way possible Mm -hmm. and just does Mm -hmm. all the weird things. And it seems like, you know, as you said, there's no logic behind this. Like no one actually wants this. And it would Mm. be really interesting to find out how much money they're actually investing into, into research like this. And it begs the question, I mean, if these biotech companies really, really, really genuinely cared about the, the, the health and the well-being of humanity, you'd think that they would be working on, 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 um, on, more, on better projects, you mm-hmm. know, mm. ones, ones, ones that aren't so superficial. And I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it seems as if it is all just about the money. How long can you keep that product on the, um, on the shelf for? I mean, like, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's the picture in the article which showed that, um, you know, it, it was comparing tomatoes after 10 days and 20 days and then 45 days. Mm-hmm. And it shows that the ordinary tomato after 45 days is pretty much rotten. It looks really mm-hmm. bad and no one's going to buy that. And then you compare it to the gene silence genetically modified tomatoes and they look perfect. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> how Unchanged. long? How, how long do they want these tomatoes to stay on the on the shelf <laughs> for a year? <laughs> now I'm with you, Elliot. I think they're just doing it to satisfy their curiosity. Like, what can I do? What can I do in the lab today that's gonna, you know, make me laugh or giggle or bring me more research money or anything like that? I mean, who cares? <laughs> Glow in the dark tomatoes. That's the next big thing. And I don't know. So the grocery stores can save on their lighting costs. Since a, a lot of them might secretly want to like be doing this kind of research on human beings, but some of them can't do that, so they'll just settle for researching gene splicing on tomatoes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's funny because in, in all like the, the GMO, pro-GMO uh, propaganda and stuff, they talk about, oh, we'll be developing drought-resistant crops and, you know, increased yield and all this kind of stuff that's going to save the world and nobody's going to be hungry anymore and all this stuff. And what do we get? We get a tomato that doesn't go bad as fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can really nourish the world with tomatoes. <laughs> exactly. It's just so but it seems like that's all they have to do. They just have to promise to save people from something and then everybody will be on board with and they can do whatever they want. 
they're just going to Well, I mean, it, it just comes down to advertising, right? Mm. Because I think people will naturally have a revulsion to this sort of idea. Hey, do you want to eat a tomato with fish genes inserted to it? No, no, I don't. I don't want to eat that. Thank you very much. So they have to kind of spin it in some way. Uh-huh. They have to kind of like, it's all about advertising. You just have to like, you know, you have to be convinced to have these things. And that, that propaganda has to be rolled out over and over and over again. So that just to, to kind of get that in people's brains that this is actually a good thing. Because otherwise, nobody would eat it. No. So, <laughs> moving on. Well, let's start getting into some of the pharmaceutical madness. Um, so there was an article recently on SOT called Another Reason to Avoid Statin Drugs, Muscle Wasting That May Lead to Lou Gehrig's Disease. So Lou Gehrig's Disease, also known as ALS, mm-hmm. which is a muscle-wasting disease. Um, so they've been doing some studies and finding that statins actually may trigger this disease. Yeah. Yeah. They say that a a, a small percentage of Lou Gehrig's disease is genetic. And then the rest, like maybe 90%, they don't know how it happens. So Mm. yeah, statins are pretty evil, but that they can cause something as bad as Lou Gehrig's I took care of a guy who had Lou Gehrig's and it's pretty sad like their muscles are just they don't work anymore and eventually they can't Mm. breathe because the diaphragm is a muscle and they can't swallow and they end up on uh, ventilators it's pretty sad jeez for people who don't know (laughs) sorry I was just going to say, for people who don't know, statins are a uh, the most popular, one of the most popular um, pharmaceutical uh, drugs out there, and they are a cholesterol lowering drug. So what they do is they actually um, work by stopping your body from producing as much cholesterol. Uh, that's their way of kind of um, attacking that pseudo problem. So, uh, but unfortunately by doing that, it interferes. I mean, cholesterol is needed for a lot of different reasons in your body. It just doesn't hang out in your blood and cause heart attacks. It's, uh, it's actually a, a very, like a, it's a nutrient. It's a, like definitely something that every cell in your body really uh, needs and is equipped to actually make. So by forcing the body to not produce as much, you're just asking for trouble. You're asking yeah. for all kinds of different biochemical pathways to be interfered with. Um, it's no real surprise that, um, that you know, it would, it would lead to something like these kinds of disease states by, by interfering in that way. Mm-hmm. And they're also linked to dementia. And your brain uses cholesterol. Mm-hmm. So is it any wonder that dementia is skyrocketing, that, you know, statins are the most widely prescribed drug in the entire world? And you don't yeah. forget that cholesterol is a precursor to all the hormones that your body makes. Exactly. So, yeah, it's pretty bad. And not to mention uh, the epidemic rates of erectile dysfunction. <laughs> when I was working in a health food store, I would always like, I'd, I'd always have these, you know, guys coming in and they would look a little bit embarrassed and they'd come over to me and ask me about something that could help with uh, erectile dysfunction. And I'd always be like, are you on statins? And mm-hmm. I swear to God, like nine times out of 10, they were like, well, yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, well, there's nothing much I can do to help you then, buddy. <laughs> <sighs> and the sad yeah. thing is, is that, you know, low, having low cholesterol is, it's been found that it leads to worse outcomes. Like people who have higher cholesterol 
live longer than people who have lower cholesterol. Yeah. And lowering yeah. your cholesterol is not going to prevent you from having a heart attack because these statins don't, you know, they don't address like your so-called good cholesterol, your HDL, or your bad cholesterol. So they say the, the low density or the very low density lipoproteins. And they cause muscle damage and weakness. They can cause something called rhabdomyolysis where your muscles uh, kind of break down and it can cause kidney damage. Uh, mm. And it leads to, you know, your heart's a muscle. And if it's causing muscle damage, you think your heart is going to be spared. So they're giving people a drug that actually causes their heart to weaken and causes them yeah. to become weak and have less energy. So what kind of quality of life is that? You know, if I'm going to die, I'd rather go out quick of a heart attack than just, you know, <laughs> slowly over the years slowly just deteriorate where I can't even walk up the steps anymore. Yeah. I mean, this, this is just a really good example of how modern medicine just is really quite backward in its mm -hmm. way of thinking. I mm -hmm. mean, they the, the whole cholesterol thing is just completely none of it really makes any sense because what they do is they observe that there's HDL and LDL, but what they don't understand is that cholesterol is merely a, a transporter. Mm -hmm. you know, these, these, these lipoproteins, they transport things. So, so instead of looking at the root cause of why you may have um, arteriosclerosis or the, the root cause of why, why you ha may have, um, you know, this 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 uh, problems with your veins and arteries and things like that and and you may be at, at risk of, of of heart disease or whatever later on um rather than look at the root cause of that they they identify it's like they they shoot the messenger because that's mm -hmm. literally what it is it is the messenger yeah. all, all it does is in response okay there is a problem here i need to be transported to this artery to fix it so mm -hmm. cholesterol is actually the body's friend if you've got high cholesterol it means that your body is trying to use it to fix what has originally mm -hmm. caused the problem. So yeah. it, none of it actually makes any sense. And I, I'm really surprised yeah. at how statins are still being prescribed to people, even after all of the research that shows that they don't work. It, it's yes. money. It's money. There's yeah, another a statin article. Car cardiology experts say that statins must be avoided at all costs. And there was a video on there, and this is something I never heard of. I was just shocked, but I shouldn't have been. Um, like when they do all these statin trials, they'll do something called a washout trial. Like First of all, they don't test people who would typically be on a statin or people who have high blood pressure or diabetes and are on multiple medications. They typically bring in healthy people. So then they do this washout trial where they give all the study participants the drug and then whoever complains of side effects, they get them out of the trial. And then they start from scratch oh with the God. ones who are left over. Like, how crooked is that? <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there ha unfortunately, there have been some studies that have shown um, satins to be effective in the short term anyway. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, the problem is that um, with a lot of these medications, a lot of times it isn't the main function of the medication that is actually helping mm -hmm. um, because statins actually have an anti-inflammatory effect. Right. So part of the reason they might be working is that it's decreasing inflammation. And that's, that's why it has nothing to do with the fact that it's lowering cholesterol, which is causing all kinds of problems. You know, it's addressing a, a symptom 
not actually addressing the, the root cause of the problem, like, uh, like Elliot was saying. So yeah, anyway, it's frustrating. Are you guys still there? I think I lost everybody else there. Okay, not sure what's going on here. Bear with us here, folks. Hello, Doug. Hello. Hey. Okay, you're still right. there. Yeah, I, I was having some connection difficulties, but uh, I'm back. Okay. Good, good. I'd, uh, I don't know if we have Tiffany, actually. Okay. We're still missing Tiffany, I think. Okay. Well, maybe we can just move move along here. Did you have anything else to say about statins? <laughs> <laughs> they are bad. <laughs> yeah, they're really bad. And like... Uh, like we were saying, I mean, it really is. It's. I, I'm actually kind of convinced that what probably happened is that they were messing around with different pharmaceuticals in the in the lab, and they said, "Hey, look, this one actually lowers cholesterol." Well, I guess there's nothing really we can do with that. Well, maybe we should create a problem and convince everybody that they need to lower their uh, cholesterol, so then we can sell this stuff. Okay. Well, done. that's why over the years they keep lowering the. Uh, cholesterol threshold like it used to yeah didn't used to be 200 it used to be higher than that and then they just wasn't it 300 it at one point yeah yeah <laughs> and they just keep on lowering it and lowering it and lowering i think now they want they want to see your uh your cholesterol below 170 or something like that like give me a break <laughs> especially given the fact that the higher your cholesterol the the longer your life <laughs> They've had studies that have shown that. So the idea that a doctor would look at your cholesterol numbers and say, oh, those are way too high. We've got to artificially lower those. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, he's telling you, we want to put you in the group of people who die sooner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I would ask my doctor if they tried to put me on a statin. Like, are you really trying to kill me? Yeah. You're trying yeah. to kill me. Well, it's I'm funny, you know. Back to you. They tried to do that to my mom, actually. They, uh, my mom came to me at one point and she's like, okay, my doctor wants to put me on statins. What should I know? And I'm like, oh my God. So I sent her to a site, which I've mentioned on the show before. It's called Healthy Diets and Science. Uh, if you just Google that, it'll pull it up. It, I think it's uh, Healthy Diets and Science at blogspot.com or something like that. And there's a section on that site dedicated to, to statins. And it has hundreds of articles, all published peer-reviewed articles in mainstream journals that just talk about side effects of statins. There are hundreds. I'm not even kidding. So I sent her that, and like the next day, she was like, "Yeah, okay, I'm not going to go on statins." It's like, yeah, that's that's a good idea. Yeah, it's good for you and your mother that she actually reads stuff. But how many people are actually going to research that? How many people are just going to listen to yeah. what their doctor says? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean it's so in the public consciousness at this point. Even though there's a lot of 
articles coming out lately that are talking about how the cholesterol is nonsense, uh, you know, the whole cholesterol scam, you know, it's becoming more and more mainstream, but it still hasn't trickled down into kind of the average person. You know, they, they've grown up with this idea that cholesterol is bad. Don't eat any more than one egg a week. Uh, don't eat too much meat uh, and go fat. on statins. Yeah, exactly. Fat don't eat causes any cholesterol. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. But uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, you're, you're right. Absolutely, Tiff. Like the average person is not going to do any of this kind of research and is probably not going to ever get the information that, that their doctor is trying to kill them. <laughs> I think it's really difficult for um for people to to really break away from from those those beliefs as well because yeah. I know in the UK anyway there's a lot of um a lot of headlines in you know mainstream newspapers and stuff that talk about the benefits of butter and saturated fat mm-hmm. and um and the cholesterol myth and you know some people who I work with um they're starting to become aware of this slightly. However, they have conflicting beliefs. And so uh, they may start using proper butter on their um, toast, but then they still simultaneously have the belief that eating fat is bad. And it's I think it's yeah. very difficult for someone who's who's been brought up with these beliefs about, about health and about nutrition, about fats, mm-hmm. um, to, to really to really break away from that. And I think it's going to take a lot, probably a very long time for that to happen um, as well. And that's 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 assuming that it does actually make its way into the mainstream sort of Mm -hmm. medical paradigm, which I'm not sure um, that it will. Who knows? I mean, I think there's so so many financial there's so many financial interests invested in this. And so I think, uh, you know, when when you start to understand the power and influence that these pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies um the apparent influence that they have over medical um uh, advisory systems and things i Mm -hmm. I think it's it's the the chance of the chance of it actually making its way through into sort of popular knowledge is is very is very unlikely unfortunately Mm mm-hmm Well, I would say the same thing probably goes for the birth control pill. That's another article we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I don't think a lot of women are aware of all the side effects of birth control pills. I mean, occasionally you might get like a lawsuit that comes out where a woman died of a blood clot. But still, Mm -hmm. I don't think in general the all the women who are taking the birth control pill know about all these side effects like depleting your body of essential nutrients like plummeting your sex drive increasing depression uh, increasing your risk for cancers like breast cancer ovarian cancer cervical cancer increasing your risk of stroke and heart attack uh, mood swings bleeding spotting hair loss fibroids fatigue i mean it's it's terrible (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think I mean, they're the told the thing. exact opposite. Mm. I was just going to say that they're told the opposite by the doctors. They're, mm-hmm. they're told that it, it will help to balance out their menstrual cycle. It will help with their hormonal fluctuations and that it will have a, a, a beneficial positive effect on their biochemistry. And that's all they're told mm. by their doctors. 
And I and think it, I think the majority of doctors actually believe that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it also has like this kind of social connotation to it. Like it's so very empowering to your womanhood to, I mean, it is good that, you know, most women want to control their repro- reproductive you know, cycles, they don't want to just constantly, you know, crank out babies all the time. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that after all these years, this was like 50 plus years since the the pill has been out. Yeah. Seems like they could have come up with something better, a little safer after all this time, 50 years. And this is, you know, all we're left with the risk of stroke and blood clots and making you crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's similar to the whole statin thing too, right? Like, I mean, leaving aside people who are taking the pill who are are just, uh, you know, don't don't want the inconvenience of an irregular menstrual cycle or the chance of getting pregnant. You know, some people are actually um, prescribed these um, because of, you know, some kind of problem uh, with with the menstrual cycle or something like that. Like they're having a lot of pain or Mm -hmm. very heavy bleeding or something like that. Then the doctor will just prescribe them the pill. Um, sorry, I just blanked on what my point was there, but I guess I, oh yes, yes, that's what it is. So it's kind of like another situation where the medical system is, is kind of alleviating a symptom, Mm -hmm. but not looking into the root cause. So rather than find out why these women have their hormones out of whack and what's actually causing the issue, they just prescribe a pill that kind of, you know, blankets over, over the problem. Um, but ends up causing a whole bunch of other problems as well. It's like it's suppressing something, and that thing that's being suppressed has to come out in some other way. So they they end up having all these additional issues. Yeah, and they give them to these teenage girls who just started menstruating. It's going to take a little while for things to come online and start working like Mm -hmm. clockwork. It took a while for me at first. And, you know, just give it time. And then plus diet. I mean, if you change your diet, get off the wheat and the sugar, you'd be surprised at how little or no menstrual cramps that you will have. So you don't really need Mm. the pill. I mean, there's, if there's some other way you can practice birth control, that would be great. But taking the pill for like other physical or mental issues is just asking for trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And the mental issues is a big thing too. Like, uh, I I remember I had a, a friend, a female friend who one time said to me something along the lines of, yeah, the pill makes girls crazy. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of was like, oh, that's a strange thing to say. But the more, you know, that kind of like just made me suddenly kind of open my eyes a little bit. And mm-hmm. I think she was totally right. Like I had, uh, I was in like a, a long-term relationship at one point and, and uh, I didn't know anything about, uh, uh, you know, holistic health at the time. And uh, she said, oh, well, maybe I should go on the pill. And, and she did. And she went into like depression and like all kinds of other terrible things that we never really connected to the fact that she was on the pill. But once she went off it, things seemed to regulate again. Yeah, so I had a lot of girlfriends who said the same thing. The pill makes me absolutely nuts. And yeah. we have a call here. So let's go ahead and take that ah. call. Hello, caller. Caller, are you there? Oops. Connection failed. Maybe uh, the caller will try and call back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Pills can make you crazy. And, 
It's it's funny too because it it gets they get sold. I mean, you mentioned this before, Tiff, but like the way that they're kind of advertised and the way that they they are brought across as this kind of empowering thing for women. Mm-hmm. Like I saw ads on the subway a while ago for some brand of birth control, and it was like it's all these like very independent women who are kind of pursuing their life dreams and all this kind of stuff, and they it it, it just like it's it's such an image. It's like it goes hand in hand. Like if you're an independent woman, then you should be taking the pill. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so it's it's just nothing but programming. That's yeah, all. Yeah, like it is. you're being irresponsible if you choose not to take something that's totally going to screw up your body. Yeah. And what they're not being told is that uh, in the U.S. at least, pharmaceutical companies generate 2.8 billion dollars every single year from the pill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is a very lucrative endeavor for those who seek to make profit from this particular pill yeah unbelievable it just comes back to how you know um how it seems like at least there are individuals at the tops of these companies who really don't care all that much about the health of the people or the well-being of the people and how they seek to just make profit uh, over anything else very yeah. very likely you know um or very often at the detriment of the ordinary person yeah i wonder yeah. uh if you took the profit motive away like the profit from selling drugs the profit of becoming super super rich by being a doctor certain kinds of doctors you know how how much of uh, the whole health uh, I forget the word, but the whole health paradigm would change. Like would people get, mm-hmm. uh, you know, regain their health would, you know, all, I mean, what, I don't know. I can't even picture this happening. Yeah. It, yeah. No, it's like, it would have to be a, a, an entirely different world for something like this to yeah. happen. Let's see if we can get this because caller if... again. Oh, okay. Caller, are you there? Hello, it's Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Jennifer. Hello. Hey, Jen. Um, just back on the topic of the pill, I just wanted to say that I find it really upsetting that women have to choose between all these adverse effects and basically a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. I think, as you said, Tiff, it's it's kind of despicable that after 50 years, um, that's all they can offer. But mm. there's, there's no pill for the man or... Um, mm any sort of, I don't know, uh, hormone-disrupting things for him to take, not that I know of anyway. Um, And also from personal experience, from being on the pill, I felt, I mean, it was just the most emotionally uh, disruptive period of my life, I think. (laughs) Mm. Um, It was just awful. As you said, Doug, I felt crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And did you much. ever tie that, like, think about that in terms of the pill? Like, did you yeah. Yeah. realize that it was, that's what was causing it? Yeah. And I came off it and funnily enough, went back to normal. <laughs> yeah. Funnily enough. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. And it's not like the alternatives, like um, the the shots or the implants or the uh, IUD devices are any better. Yeah, mm. it's like I mean, I've this is all they could so, come up with. 
Yeah. I've known people yeah. that have been left um, inf- basically infertile because of, I think it was the implant that you have in your arm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of difficulties getting pregnant since then. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. I mean, obviously it has benefits, as you said, about uh, about independence and people getting jobs and all that stuff. But aren't there any other ways that they can come up with? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've always is... said that I think that birth control should be completely mental. If you don't want to have a baby, you should just say that to your body and your body should be like, okay, <laughs> let's not have a baby. Yeah, that sounds like something to rely on. <laughs> <laughs> but Thank I mean, you, the thing is like, oh, sorry. No, I was just, just going to say that was it. That's all I uh, had to say. Uh, Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling in, Jennifer. Okay. Thanks, no Jen. Thanks, Bye. Jennifer. Bye. Yeah, you know, it's so it's it's so crazy too that there's all these insane side effects from these things. And I mean, it's it it's basically to avoid pregnancy. And it's not like there aren't other ways of doing that. Mm-hmm. Like there's lots of ways, like there's lots of methods out there that are are perfectly fine that you can use. So like what I I just don't understand why people would put themselves through this. I mean, obviously it's because they don't know, but yeah. You know, if you really, if you were given the options and said, hey, we can give you this pill, that'll mean you can have sex as much as you want, you won't get pregnant, but it comes with these massive hosts of side effects, including making you crazy, or we can not give you the pill and you can rely on another method. You know, if, if you put it in those terms, it just seems so obvious. Like, you know, it, it's, it's like, it's not like this is like some kind of life and death pill or some yeah. kind of medication that's, that's, that's uh, treating some kind of disease state or something like that. This is, this is like a, conv- a minor inconvenience. It really, it it just kind of, it blows my mind. Well, there's so many of normal, natural female functions that are just medicalized. Like uh, having a baby, having your period, having breasts, you know. You know, Mm. let's chop your breasts off because you have the (laughs) breast cancer gene. I mean, women have been butchered by the medical industry since I don't know when. Like if you read a bunch of these old health books, like hysterectomies and things like that it is just like not a good time to be a woman (laughs) (laughs) that that must be why they're creating all of these breast milk formulas because um (laughs) they're gonna butcher you up so you don't have any breasts to feed your baby anyway yeah (laughs) you know we'll put put you to sleep knock you out you know just because you you're having a baby We'll cut you open and pull your baby out of your 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 abdominal cavity. <laughs> yeah. Just, ugh, no. It sounds like a horror movie. Yeah. It really does. Jeez. Okay. Well, um, why don't we talk about vaccines a little bit? So there was an article up uh, called "Man Mandated Vaccines Will Be a Toxic Reality." Of a, of a Hillary Clinton administration. And right off the bat, they, uh, they, they show Hillary's famous tweet where she said, the science is clear, the earth is round, the sky is blue, and vaccines work. Let's protect all our kids. Hashtag grandmothers know best. My grandma never told me to get vaccinated, by the way, just no. putting that out there. And 
There is no way on earth that I would trust Hillary Clinton to give me advice about what I should do with my child or not. About anything. Evil I wouldn't take witch. her advice on anything. Seriously. But, like uh, a professional serial child killer. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. She is. She's... Well, she defended that, that child oh, rapist. Yeah. I mean, right there. Just shows. And then admitted it. Yeah. What was that? She defended what? This, um, back when she was practicing law, there was this uh, man who raped this teenage girl. And oh, she yeah. totally defended him and he got off. Yeah. Unbelievable. And she, so laughed, right there, about it. she laughed about it. Just like she laughed yeah. about uh, Gaddafi being murdered. Yeah. Yeah, she's pretty evil. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's yeah. I think it's easy, easy to say. The article kind of goes into how she supports um, mandatory vaccination, um, and it talks about a lot of the um, campaign contributions that have come from Big Pharma, mm-hmm. um, and how her um, uh, VP um, choice, Tim Kaine, was responsible for. Uh, what was it again? He was responsible for yeah. forcing girls to get the HPV vaccine. Yeah, sixth grade girls in Virginia. He signed a law uh, saying that it was mandatory for them to have that done. Um, he also yeah. took like $12,000 from Tiva Pharmaceuticals. They don't make the Gardasil vaccine, but, you know, it mm. just shows that he's open to taking money from anybody. That'll give it to Yeah, him. he's in the pharmaceutical company's pocket, but yeah. like, it's pretty obvious. Yeah. And Hillary, um, in the article, it said that she mentioned that she wanted to work specifically with this representative from California named Frederica Wilson. And this woman is the one who um, introduced the national version of California's mandatory vaccine law. So mm. it looks like, I mean, I. I don't think it matters who, you know, who becomes president and the powers that be and the elites are going to push whatever laws they want. The president is basically just a puppet, but Hillary mm-hmm. just seems like a very willing and enthusiastic <laughs> puppet <laughs> and she'll yeah. do whatever they tell her to do with glee. Yeah, but, she uh, rejoices yeah. in it. I mean, just Absolutely. from all the news stories that has come out recently in the last couple of years, it looks like mandatory vaccines for every body and for every type of vaccine is just something that's coming down the pipeline there's like 271 new vaccines that are being developed yeah 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 271 yeah it seems like what they're trying to do is create a vaccine for every known possible condition or (laughs) ailment that the human might face i mean like anything Mm -hmm. i mean what, what does it say it says um it says they're developing vaccines for allergies, which I don't know how that would work. I don't think it probably would work. But, so uh, counterintuitive. I mean, like, what is that? What you're going to get a vaccine for hay fever? I mean, <laughs> seriously, like that's just insane. I mean, when you look at what's in the vaccines as well, mm-hmm. and it, it, none of it really makes any sense if you take the no, financial element out of it. But when exactly. When you understand the financial element of it, then it all fits together per- perfectly. <laughs> well, there was uh, one point they were talking about a universal vaccine. 
Or it's like one jab for anything that might, you know, kill you or make you sick. But of course they, they wouldn't won't do make that. enough money off that. I know, I know. It's just one vaccine. <laughs> what are they going to charge a billion dollars per vaccine? <laughs> they need to have a bunch of ones so they can, you know, charge some for this one, some for that one. You know, make yeah, as much money as they can. <laughs> but exactly. the idea of a universal vaccine is just so preposterous. Like, what can they put into that vaccine? Like every putrid radioactive cancer causing <laughs> substance known to man put all of that into one vaccine and there you go there's your universal vaccine <laughs> one of our way, chatters any... said one jab to rule them all <laughs> <laughs> the only way that i can see that working is if you take the vaccine and you drop down dead straight away so that nothing yeah. can affect your immune system because you're already dead <laughs> <laughs> It's like I you didn't get any of the diseases, did you? Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I'm actually really worried about um, being in a car accident. It's just something that I'm very uh, worried about. So I'm hoping that someday now they're going to come out with a vaccine for car accidents <laughs> because I'm really a bit a bit nervous about that. They will. Don't worry, Doug. It's coming. Okay, good. Good. Thank God. <laughs> Thank you, science. <laughs> Thanks, science. <laughs> oh man anyway well there's a, uh, a, a lot of uh, Japanese women that are suing over the cervical yeah. cancer vaccine which from what I've read is like one of the deadliest most dangerous vaccines that they've created in recent years mm. so they're demanding uh, like 15 million yen in damages each each. Yeah. Each. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's 64, a group of lawyers for 64 women who are suffering health problems from uh, cervical cancer vaccines. And they're suing. And the, uh, the average age um, is only 18 years old as well. So these, these women, uh, they received the vaccination when they were between 11 and 16 years old. And they've all experienced um, some significant uh, physiological effects from the vaccine and i really do wish these guys the best of luck yeah. um i really do because it would be great for i mean to be honest i don't know how much 15 million yen yen is um when you compare it to any western country uh currency mm -hmm. i don't know if it's a lot but i, I mean i can't imagine like it will be yeah, I mean, it does. I can't imagine it will be a massive hit to the pharmaceutical companies, though. I mean, because those guys, their revenue is like billions. But mm -hmm. it would be good if this can get some sort of widespread publicity, because it might actually encourage um, more people from other areas of the world, perhaps, to really start getting onto this. And y you never know, like, eventually, you may have thousands and millions of people claiming claiming against this, you know, and then that may, yeah. that may um, initiate these these companies to rethink the uh, the ingredients that they're putting into these vaccines. Well, it it might have more of an effect too because it's not just the uh, drug manufacturers that are being sued; they're actually suing the government. Yeah. So um, that oh, okay. might have a, a little bit more of an impact, just because um, that you know they. The, the government that might actually have the potential to change the government's stance on these vaccines yeah, and uh, already Japan. Them. Yes. And 
the J- Japan is already a little bit like, I mean, they're less enthusiastic about vaccines mm-hmm. than, uh, than other Western countries. And uh, they've actually been criticized for that um, in the past uh, that they're not up to, up to pace with uh, Western other Western countries and their vaccine schedule. So, you know, go Japan is all I can say. And maybe, maybe this uh, lawsuit will, uh, will affect things in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Here's hoping anyway. But probably not. Well, (laughs) we'll see, though. All we can say is we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sorry. I was going to ask about Australia and their their no job, no pay rule. Yeah. Yeah. So basically there was a... An article up on SOC called Vaccinate or No Pay. Vaccination rates skyrocket in Australia. So Australia has this this program in place, um, which launched on January 1st, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, basically it was a, it was a, a program that would withhold uh, child, uh, child care rebates and child care benefits mm-hmm. um, if the child was not vaccinated. So that amounts to up to $15,000 of a parent's income um, who refused to have their children immunized. Uh, so it's basically, um, well, blackmail, essentially. Yeah. Into getting, uh, into getting vaccinated, getting your kids vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was quite surprised your... that... Sorry, go ahead, Tiff. If you don't get your kids vaccinated, they can't. Uh, enroll in child care, preschool, or kindergarten. And yeah. they said that uh, vaccinated their, their whole herd immunity thing, like the number of kids vaccinated in the last year before this rule came out was 93%. I mean, 90%. And then it went up to 93%. So they're just not going to be happy until every single person yeah. on the planet has a needle stuck in their arm. Yeah, a hundred percent. It has to be a hundred percent. Or you're you're going to keep on hearing about this, and every time there's any kind of outbreak of anything, it will get blamed on that minuscule amount of the population that's not vaccinated. But again, we spoke about this on the show on on a number of shows before. I mean, that's a logical fallacy. Like working from mm-hmm. the concept of herd immunity, it states that the immunity of the herd, which is the majority of the population, prevents the disease being spread to that small amount, the, the, the minority who are not immunized. And mm-hmm. let's just say the minority did contract a disease. Then if the vaccines actually worked, mm-hmm. then the people mm-hmm. who were vaccinated wouldn't get the disease anyway. So exactly. the whole concept is completely just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't really work. And I think it's just some, it's just a way, it's just like a, a, a you know, like a, a made up, concept that they that they uh funnel through to the to the population to convince them that um the vaccines are somehow um are somehow necessary in 100 percent of the population and to be honest when i read this i was really quite surprised at how how they can even do this um like it seems as if it's a little bit um what's the word a little bit excessive, you know, like to actually say, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really expansive. It affects everyone in Australia. And I, I just didn't, a few years ago, I didn't think that it would get to this point or 
maybe I didn't think it would get to this point just yet. It seems like it's really rapidly progressing now, and it's something that they're trying to really strongly enforce on on the whole population. Um, yeah, it's you know it's fairly um, it's quite scary actually. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of you know it makes me it's it's funny that they they did this in Australia, so kind of like this this country kind of off in the corner of the world that uh, is a little bit more isolated. It's almost like that was like their test run. Yeah. Let's see how mandatory vaccination goes here before we roll it out in the rest of the world. Yeah. Let's see what happens. See what the resistance is. See, um, see what kind of problems come up. And, uh, you know, once we've done that trial run, then we can, we can roll it out and we'll see. Yeah, what uh, what kind of threats do the people respond to? Yeah. 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 It's really scary. Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're uh, kind of over our time here. Do we want to keep going here and talk about corruption and big food? Or should we save that for another show? We can probably save it. But, I mean, who doesn't know? If you don't know, you should know. <laughs> the CDC and the FDA are corrupt to their cores. <laughs> yeah. Throw the EPA in there as well. Yeah. Don't trust any government yeah. alphabet agency with your life or with any health decisions. Make your own decisions, please. Do your own research. Don't listen to them. Yeah. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, yeah certainly. Let's finish on a, a high note. Okay. Well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Why don't we... Uh, so there was another article published on SOT um, called We Always Carry Our Children in Our Hearts. Mother oh. and Child Are Linked at the Cellular Level. Isn't that sweet? Very sweet. <laughs> so the baby's so DNA the... becomes a part of the mother's body in this mm-hmm. article. And it says that you know the, the mother is basically becomes a chimera once she gets pregnant even if she doesn't deliver or she has a miscarriage some part of that baby cells will always be in the mother it'll be in her blood and her bone marrow bone marrow her skin kidney and liver cells and this this fetal dna or fetal cells will give her protection against diseases which is just mind-blowing yeah yeah, it's it's basically like they didn't real. They thought that the um, placenta was a lot more, a lot less permeable than they're starting to realize, and that some of the cellular material that includes stem cells um, actually gets through that placenta. It, it's actually both ways. I mean, some of the cells that the mother go into into the the child, uh, but more kind of almost more interestingly, the the childs go and and become kind of a part of the mother, and because they're stem cells, they can be kind of morphed into whatever the body needs at any given time so they found that some of these uh stem cells are are helpful for multiple different things but in certain types of cancer Mm. um but also for the heart so yeah i found that to be very very interesting yeah and they showed that um that the presence of these fetal cells in a woman's body is associated with substantially improved longevity Mm. And they state that there's an overall mortality rate 60% lower in women who do have these fetal cells when compared with women who don't have such cells. Mm. So, for breast cancer, right? That was for, for breast cancer? Um, was it for breast cancer? I'm not sure. I 
don't think it was. Oh, okay. I thought that, I thought it was specifically for breast cancer. Oh. I'm scanning the article here. Oh, I don't see it. <laughs> well, I think it's kind of sad <laughs> that <laughs> Chelsea cells might be helping Killary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Yeah, I guess there's nothing you can do about that. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, I found it. It is with breast cancer. Oh, okay. My bad. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah anyway. <laughs> well, anyway, that's kind of a happy note yeah. to know that uh, your cells are, are helping out your mom yeah. with whatever she's going through. And through going through um, all of the uh, traumatic experience of having a child, not that it's necessarily traumatic, but what I mean is it's pretty intense, isn't it? <laughs> you know, on the woman's mm. physiology, like um, that any possible complications that may stem from that, perhaps even the baby, the, the fetal cells might help the, the body, you know, overcome any any complications that the mother might um come across in in birth you know maybe that's mm-hmm. like a maybe it's like a survival mechanism you know like a a way that that nature can some can almost protect women who do have children because yeah. there are lots of complications naturally but perhaps maybe those fetal fetal cells are you know that extra boost you know that extra boost yeah. that might save a woman's life you know I, yeah I don't know, and also sounds yeah. interesting keep the woman around to actually take care of her child and her children's children because grandmothers play a big role in especially uh, their daughter's children's lives a lot of the time. Um, So yeah, it's a good survival mechanism. It enhances the species survival and next mother's day, everybody should remind their mothers that, you know, we're actually are helping you out. So don't get on my back too hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a pretty good note to, uh, kind of wrap things up here. Do you want to go, do you want to go to, uh, Zoya's pet health segment? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go to Zoya. Zoonotic diseases. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I'm going to share with you information on the topic of zoonotic diseases, or diseases that can be transmitted from animals to humans. If you follow the news, or if you read SOTNET, you're probably aware of the fact that Yamal Peninsula in Russia at the moment experiences an outbreak of anthrax, or otherwise called a Siberian plague. Experts say that anthrax was embedded in a human or reindeer corpse, and that unusually hot summer weather in this Arctic location awoke the deadly infection, which had been dormant since at least 1941, when the last outbreak occurred. And so this unfortunate event gave me an idea to look for information about other similarly deadly diseases. Yeah, I know, charming. But considering the upcoming ice age, including various cosmic influences or the fact that 
throughout the history various plagues were caused by viruses and other pathogens from space, we need to be aware of factors that contribute to the increasing chaos on this planet. And we need to know what may happen if we are not lucky. Again, as I said, it is going to be a charming topic. But at least I found the talk by Hank Green of SciShow Channel about five deadly diseases that is rather captivating. Hope you'll find it interesting. Here it is. There's a lot of stuff that's out there trying to kill us right now, and today I'm going to talk about the ones that are the best at it. The five deadliest infectious diseases in the world. Now do yourself a favor, put away any food you might have nearby you, and if you uh, have a dog, you might want to move it into another room. You might be tempted to say that the monstrous bastards I'm about to talk about right now are the deadliest organisms in the world, but that wouldn't really be true. Because all of the diseases you're going to hear about today are caused by viruses. And as you know, viruses are just protein-covered scumbags full of nucleic acids, so they're not generally considered living things. But still, you gotta hand it to them. Viruses have probably been around for at least tens of millions of years and have managed to make a great living by ripping off our DNA like they're the frickin' Pirate Bay and using it to copy themselves and pretty much master our asses for as long as there have been warts. But I'm not talking about warts here, guys. It's much worse than that. I'm talking about the diseases with the highest known case fatality rates, which is how experts measure the deadliness of a disease. The percentage of people diagnosed with it who end up dying from it. Remember the Spanish flu? 1917 to 1918 killed like 30 million people worldwide and basically changed the course of modern history. That was a strain of a virus called H1N1 and it had a case fatality rate of like 10 to 20 percent. Viruses I'm talking about are so much deadlier by comparison that Spanish flu is basically not even worth calling in sick for. Take for instance Nipah which has an average case fatality rate of about 50%. It's named for a town in Malaysia where it was discovered in 1999 among pig farmers. Seems a bunch of them started coming down with severe respiratory problems and inflammation of the brain that caused hallucinations and seizures and not the good kinds. Wait, there's good kinds of seizures? Outbreaks soon followed in India and Bangladesh, this time among people who had eaten fruit that was tainted by bats that carried the virus. The death rate in some of these outbreaks was 100%, and there are no treatments or vaccines for the virus. But what's really pants poopingly terrifying about Nipah is that it soon proved to be easily transmissible among humans. No pigs or bats or pig bats required. In 2001, there was an outbreak in the town of Siliguri in India, and 75% of those cases were traced back to people who had visited the local hospital. Just by being in that building, they got it. But hey, that doesn't affect you, right? Because odds are you're not a pig farmer, and you're also probably not watching from your home in Siliguri. Well, no doubt you've heard of H5N1. The virus formerly known as bird flu has been making the rounds, mainly in Asia and Europe, where it's often fatal to birds. Luckily, it's rarely contracted by people, and it's not very good at jumping from person to person until now. You may remember a while back when I told you about how scientists genetically engineered bird flu to make it contagious among ferrets. And that's important because ferrets essentially have the same immune system as humans, don't ask me why. It's assumed that these new strains are contagious to us as well, which kind of sucks because the World Health Organization says that H5N1 kills at least 54% of the people who get it, usually from respiratory problems. Now there is a vaccine for the strain that's out in the world right now, but at least in the US, it's been stockpiled by the government and hasn't been made available to the public. 
Yet. As for the strains that were made to be contagious between mammals, they are currently kept under lock and key in labs in Wisconsin and the Netherlands. Hopefully, big lock with thumbprint and retinal scan and voice activated. And some of the scientists who monkeyed with the virus have said that they've developed the vaccine, at least for the strains that they invented. So that's great. They can release it on the world and then sell the vaccine. That'll be great business for them. Now, Hank. You're saying, I'm not a Malaysian bat handler, and I've already stocked my pantry with enough Skittles and Diet Sierra Mist to get me through the bird flu pandemic. Come with my donut. All right, how about this? In 1967, German scientists in the town of Marburg were testing polio vaccines on monkeys imported from Uganda. And you know you're going to have a killer story on your hands when it starts with German scientists and lab monkeys. Well, those scientists started coming down with some gut-wrenchingly, flop-sweat-inducingly horrible symptoms. Wicked fevers, diarrhea, vomiting, massive internal bleeding, until, for many of them, their circulatory systems just shut down. It didn't take long for the scientists to figure out that there was a correlation between messing with monkey parts and contracting the disease. So they basically started studying themselves and their sickness and isolated the virus that is today known as Marburg hemorrhagic fever. That first outbreak in 1967 killed 23% of the scientists, and in some countries, including the United States, that's still the official case fatality rate. But the thing is, Marburg keeps showing up, mainly in Central Africa, and when it does, it kills more more than 80% of its victims in outbreaks affecting hundreds of people. Unlike Nipah, though, which can be transmitted through the air, Marburg can only be contracted by coming into contact with an infected person's body fluids or tissues, which are all over the place when they're actually infected with them. It's not something you generally think of. It's like, how would I get that person's poop on me? Oh, because his butt is exploding! And we should all be thanking our gods for that, because otherwise it would be lights out. The World Health Organization says that Marburg is one of the most virulent pathogens to ever infect humans, and national security types put Marburg on the top of the list of viruses that you do not want crazy people getting their hands on. And when those German scientists first isolated the Marburg virus, they realized that they were dealing with a whole new class of scumbag. A virus that has a completely different shape and attacked the human circulatory system. What they had discovered was the virus family Phyloviridae. This unwholesome lot includes a cousin of Marburg that is the second most fatal disease on our list, Zaire Ebola virus, or Zbov. As you can tell from its name, Zbov is just one of five species of the Ebola virus, and it's the one that's responsible for the most outbreaks and is by far the deadliest. Like Marburg, Zbov causes a wide range of flu-like symptoms, like, I'm gonna do this smiling, vomiting, and fever, and then moves on to failure of blood vessels, causing bleeding under the skin from mucous membranes. Is it better when I'm smiling? But unlike Marburg, Zibov has an average fatality rate of 83% in outbreaks in the Republic of Congo in the early 2000s. It killed more than 90% of the people it infected. So how could you possibly get any worse than that? What disease is deadlier than 90% fatal? And in what forsaken corner of the globe does it thrive? Well, I'm going to tell you, and it may be a little bit surprising, but first, you might want to put your dog in another room. The deadliest disease in the world, the one with the highest, almost always worst case scenario, nearly perfect batting average fatality rate? Rabies. I know! You're like, huh? You mean, my adorable golden retriever over here is a vector for the greatest plague known to humanity? Isn't rabies, like, everywhere? And isn't there a vaccine? Indeed, all that is true, but the fact is that rabies has a case fatality rate of about 100%. Once you've been diagnosed with symptoms of the disease, it means almost certain death. There have been fewer than 10 recorded cases of people exhibiting symptoms of rabies and then living to tell about it. Less than 10. So, why hasn't the rabies virus brought humanity to its knees? 
three reasons. One, unlike all the other filthy scumbags I've talked about today, there's a vaccine that's widely available for the rabies virus. Louis Pasteur developed it in the 1880s using tissue of dead, infected rabbits. And since then, the ball's pretty much been in our court. But it's important to remember, a vaccine isn't a cure, it's just a preventative. Which brings us to reason two. Rabies has a really long incubation period. That's the time between when you're infected and when your symptoms start to appear. Marburg and Ebola have incubation periods of just a few days. But for rabies, it's like two to three months. And that means you have almost 12 weeks to get vaccinated for rabies, even after you've been infected and the vaccine will prevent the onset of symptoms. So you're basically taking the preventative treatment even after the virus is in your body, but you're not quite infected yet. And the third reason we're beating rabies is education. At least in developed countries, public health education has been so good for so long that people get vaccinated as soon as they're bitten by an animal. And in many places, vaccinating pets is required by law. It's a sterling public health victory. But rabies remains a serious problem in developing countries where both public health education and access to healthcare are scarce, and it is a terrible way to go. Early symptoms are flu-like, but after a couple of days, the virus targets the central nervous system, and then the victims become agitated and delirious and often begin to experience seizures. Paralysis strikes, mostly the throat and the jaw, making it difficult to swallow, which is why patients avoid water, giving it the nickname hydrophobia. Soon, pulse and blood pressure begin to vary wildly, often leading to coma and eventually heart failure. So, there's that. NEPA, H5N1, Marburg, Zebov, rabies, but what do these execrable conditions have in common? Well, one thing you may have noticed is that all of these diseases are zoonotic, meaning that they're transmitted to humans from animals, or originally were anyway. With the exception of bird flu, they're all easily transmitted to us from other mammals, bats especially. I don't know about you, but my plans of adopting a pet bat are totally off the table now. And what makes them transmissible? Well, all these viruses belong to this order of viruses. You can try to pronounce it, I'm not going to. But they're bullet-shaped viruses with a single strand of RNA inside. They're very good at connecting with animal and plant cells, and because they lack the enzyme that proofreads its RNA after it's copied, it mutates really easily and really quickly. For these and other reasons, these viruses are responsible for many, many, many of the diseases that affect people, like mumps and measles and all kinds of flu. All right, now, assuming that your dog is properly vaccinating, you can let it back the room and give it a big kiss now if you still feel like it. Sorry if I ruined your day, but someone had to do it. Aren't you glad it was me? Thanks for watching this infusion here on SciShow. If you want more, go to youtube.com scishow and subscribe. If you have questions or ideas for future episodes, things you'd like us to cover, please leave them in the comments or on Facebook or Twitter. Goodbye. Okay, well, thanks, Zoya. That was very informative and very entertaining. It was. Um, Who thought yeah, diseases could quite... be so fun? Yeah, <laughs> very pleasant way to talk about what's going to kill you. <laughs> so that's our show for today. Uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Uh, thanks to our caller, Jennifer. It was a very good call. And uh, we will be back next week with another show. Don't forget to tune into the other uh, SOT Radio uh, show on Sunday. Uh, you can go to radio.sot.net to uh, check out the time for that. And that's the show. So have a good weekend, everybody. 
Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks, guys.